Welcome to the latest JCO Oncology Practice Podcast, brought to you by the ASCO Podcast Network, a collection of nine programs covering a range of educational and scientific content and offering enriching insight into the world of cancer care. You can find all recordings, including this one, at podcast.asco.org. My name is Dr. Nate Pinnell, medical oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic and consultant editor for the JCOOP. Today, I'd like to talk about sex disparities in academic oncology. Despite increasing attention in recent years, sex disparities in academic medicine clearly persist and are most noticeable at the more senior and leadership positions within academic centers. While these disparities are well recognized in general in medicine, what exactly is known about sex disparities in academic leadership in oncology specifically? With me today to discuss this topic are Dr. Faisal Kosa, Associate Professor in the Department of Radiology at Vancouver General Hospital, the University of British Columbia, and Dr. Ariella Marshall, Associate Professor of Medicine and Hematologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We'll be discussing their paper, Sex Differences in Faculty Rank and Leadership Positions Among Hematologists and Oncologists in the United States, published online in the JCOOP in February 2020. Welcome, Faisal and Ariella, and thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. We're glad to be here. So how big of a problem is sex disparities in academic medicine in general? So I can speak to that a little bit. And then certainly Dr. Kosa also is a world leader in this area. So he can uh, add on to what I have to say. So I think, you know, we well know that this is a problem across the board, you know, regardless of specialty, regardless of whether we're talking about academic rank or position on editorial boards um, or any number of other leadership positions. So we see this huge kind of drop-off between our current medical school population, which is actually over 50% female um, as of the last couple of years, but then a sharp drop-off over time when we get up the ladder kind of the associate and then the full professor level, as well as positions like dean, hospital CEO, department chairs, and any number of other leadership positions. And I'd certainly like to hear what Dr. Gosa has to say as well. Nathan, thank you for inviting uh, my participation on this very important topic. I would also like to add that I have no personal or institutional conflicts of interest with this publication that we are discussing or this particular interview that is being uh, recorded now. I would also like to thank Dr. Irbaz bin Riaz from Department of Hematology and Oncology at Mayo Clinic who spearheaded this project successfully and is also the first author on this manuscript. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I agree with uh, Ariella's uh, comments. Women are underrepresented in higher academic ranks and leadership positions in spite of, you know, more than 50% matriculants from medical schools across North America, U.S. and Canada are now women, but they represent fewer than 20% of medical school deans and department chairs. Furthermore, the American Association of Medical Colleges data reveals that female physicians make 76 cents for every dollar earned by their male counterparts. And this is even after adjusting for age, experience, and discipline of practice. Women report difficulty finding mentors and are significantly less likely to receive sponsorship. 
Now let me explain the difference. Mentorship is critical to the development of leadership skills or abilities, while sponsorship is necessary to enter into leadership positions. No, that certainly makes sense that that would be a significant barrier to academic success. I think it's interesting you mentioned that women now make up approximately half of of physicians in medical school. You know, I went to medical school in starting in 1998 and already more than half of my class was women. Why do you think they're still seeing this disparity, you know, 20 years later? That's a great question, and I think, you know, we can delve maybe a little bit into our paper here in terms of what we found in hematology oncology, because I would imagine that, you know, some of these findings are kind of similar across the board. And so, you know, what we observed here in this study um, is that we did see that sharp drop-off in number of associate and full professors. So while we saw about 45% of women uh, were assistant professors, only about 36% of the associate professors were women and only about 22% of the full professors were women. So there's definitely that drop-off over time and also only about 30% of department leaders were women. And so, you know, one thing that people bring up a lot is just kind of time, right? So, you know, the time to go from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor is not measured in months or even in couple of years. It's measured, you know, on the 10, 20, 30 year time frame. So some may say that that's, you know, probably a big driving factor um, is that, you know, it just hasn't caught, what we're seeing in medical school has not yet caught up what we're seeing in leadership positions that take years, you know, probably, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to achieve. But the other thing that we can talk about a bit later is it's not just time, it's the fact that people who have those positions may stay in them for, you know, 10, 20 years and not kind of leave room for other people to get into those positions. And also, you know, there's differences in how long it takes women to get promoted. And if you have to achieve a certain academic rank to get one of these leadership positions, then there may be delays of women being able to do that for a number of factors that we can talk about. There is one more factor which is less obvious but equally challenging, which perpetuates the problem that we are discussing here. If you look at appointment and promotions in academic medicine, and I have been fortunate that I practiced in Europe, then I practiced in U.S., and now I'm practicing in, in Canada, and all my practice has been in academic institutions. Whenever somebody is being shortlisted, selected, interviewed, appointed to an academic leadership position, what the sole or entire or 90% or 99% of the focus is on that individual's performance of publications, of grants, of collaborations, nowhere is the consideration given to a person's or individual's track record or advocacy for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, such an individual gets into the leadership position. Now, they are handed a memo saying you have to ensure equal opportunity and you have to Make sure that, you know, minorities are appointed, women are appointed, they are promoted. Now, such an individual does not have innate interest or understanding or even expertise in equity, diversity, and inclusion. So previously, what was a bottleneck 
of barriers to entry for women and minorities has now become a bottleneck and barrier to promotion and leadership positions and this is a, a subtle you know uh, undertaking which people sort of overlook when they are selecting people for appointment positions no i think that's a uh, i hadn't thought of that but that's a very significant factor i would think and this this sort of gets to the larger topic of uh, how we choose our leaders in academic medicine. We don't necessarily choose people based upon skills in leadership and training in leadership, but rather on personal success in whatever their academic field is, which does not necessarily lend itself to, um, you know, being able to do the job that they've now been appointed to. Can you take us through um, how you designed your study? So we started off with publicly available data. And the first thing we did was AMA, we went to the website, looked at institutions that offer residency and fellowship training, because those were academic institutions by default. From there, we actually downloaded or created the lists of programs and then visited the website of each program to obtain the list of their faculty from department chair down to the level of assistant professor in hematology and oncology. We looked at leadership positions, director, associate director, division chief. We also looked at practice type, whether it was university, whether it was community, whether it was a combination of the two. We looked at number of trainees. We looked at the geographic location, like state of the practice. In addition to that, we also looked at whether it was an MD or DO, whether it was an international medical graduate faculty, years since medical school, years since residency, number of publications, number of grants, number of clinical trials, number of first author publications, number of citations. So we made it as comprehensive as possible from our experience of what it takes for academic appointments and what is considered vital for academic promotions and to get people into leadership positions. Yeah, that was one of the things that I wondered is how one really measures this. And it sounds like you did a, a wonderful job of trying to identify as best you could objective measures. Um, there probably isn't really a way to measure bias uh, about uh, sex differences in, in appointments. So you, you would have to look at this using these objective measures. I, I agree, Nathan. And, and, you know, let me add to that what is Normal, you know, we talk about a normal. Normal is an illusion. What is normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. So there are, you know, many things that are tangible. Then there are many things also that those are intangible. So we can only study what is objective or objectively can be calculated or measured. But in this equation, I'll give you an example you look at interview panels and most of them are males, right? Now, how are you How are you going to configure bias in that room when a female comes into interview? Automatically, people are going to presume, oh, she is married. Automatically, people are going to presume, oh, she may have kids. Oh, she may not be able to do justice to this leadership position, this chair position or what have you. And those are the things that are going on in people's heads. There is no way that you can shine a light on that. Of course, of course. Although, you know, in a way you do that by 
trying to match everything as objectively as you can and seeing if there's still a significant difference at the end. Okay, so why don't you start taking me through what you found? So I talked a little bit about, you know, what we had observed in terms of that drop-off and the numbers or the percentages, at least, of women who um, were of higher and of academic rank um, in the associate professors, and then only 22% being full professors and only 30% being uh, leaders of their departments. Uh, we did also find that the women had lower H index. So, you know, what we could tell in terms of you know, an objective measure of research productivity, although, of course, that's not by any means a perfect measure. And they also had fewer years of professional experience and fellowship, which, again, speaks to the fact that while there's parity in gender in medical school currently, you know, in terms of practicing physicians, there's still this gap. Um, and then we looked at the odds of obtaining full professorship or leadership of a division uh, after we adjusted for how long somebody had been in practice, what their productivity was, you know, again, measured by the age index, so not the most perfect measure. And we did not find actually any differences based on sex and the odds of obtaining either professorship or divisional leadership. So, you know, again, one could call this a quote-unquote negative study in that, okay, if you correct for enough of these factors, there don't appear to be sex disparities um, in women being able to achieve leadership or to obtain kind of higher academic rank. But I think, you know, a very important thing to note is that's not kind of the point we want to be making with this study is that, oh, there's there's no gender difference, there's no sex disparity here. We want to point out that, you know, this is the real world. In the real world, we don't correct for things like clinical experience and academic productivity. You can't do a mathematical correction. What we need to see is why are there things like difference in academic productivity? What are the factors that may make it more difficult for women to be able to achieve these ranks over time? What are the barriers that they're facing and how can we try to overcome them? Because we're not in a mathematical world where we just correct for these things. We need to help our systems change to allow women to achieve these positions of leadership. Yeah, I'm glad that you pointed that out because my first read of the paper was actually, wow, they're actually concluding that there isn't a big gender difference or, or a sex difference in, in senior leaderships. But as you actually read in, um, there clearly could be disparities in terms of women being able to achieve the same numbers of publications and a high, uh, equally high H index and grant funding that would get them to the point where they would be in a position to get these leadership positions. So the, the disparity extends well beyond those positions themselves. There's a lot of data out there, you know, that women are funded at lower rates for initial grants. And of course, you know, that once somebody, you know, gets a grant, they're more likely to get other grants in the future. So putting that barrier in place from the beginning makes it harder for women to get grants over time, makes it harder for them to get published. We know that editorial boards have a lot of sex disparity. We know that, as Dr. Corsa also said, you know, there are sex disparities in leadership who are making decisions about who gets promoted. So there's all these unseen variables that we can't account for that are probably barriers to achieving these higher leadership positions. This is something that always comes up when we talk about 
barriers to women moving up in leadership roles that they maybe earlier in their careers uh, focus to some extent on raising a family or even if they are continuing to work without a break, that they have a disproportionate share of family uh, and home care obligations and uh, that this may lead to lower academic productivity and therefore some of the measures that go into leadership promotions may not be as uh, prominently featured on their CVs for these reasons. And so do we need to think differently about the criteria that go into promotions? Exactly. And that's kind of one of the points that we both wanted to make while talking with you today is that, you know, the, as the saying goes, we need to fix the system, not the women. You know, the for a long time when we were told, oh, you just need to work harder, be more productive, you need to essentially be like a man, quote unquote, You're, we're, we're in a system that was developed by men, run by men, and has criteria that allow men to get promoted. And so if we apply the same criteria to women, we're essentially telling them, you need to behave like a man in order to succeed in this system. So we don't need to you know, tell women to be like a man. We need to change the system to be more friendly for everybody. Um, and so that does involve things like changing what criteria we look at for promotion. You know, as Dr. Costa is saying, why are we just looking at the number of publications on a CV? There's a lot of other things that women do that actually make a big contribution, you know, whether it be you know, seeing you know, a higher number of patients, whether it be serving on committees. You know, we know that women are more likely to serve on committees than men, and committees are things that are unrewarded on your CV but take quite a lot of time and effort to do. So there's all of these unseen things that women are doing that don't make it onto the CV as a criteria for promotion that we really need to take, you know, a much harder look at. Um, and at the same time, we also need to be changing the system to say, what are we doing wrong that allows women to be paid you know, less than men for doing the same task. What are we doing wrong that we are funding women at a lower rate than men, you know, when they submit grants? What are we doing wrong that allows our editorial boards and journal reviewers to continue being primarily men? So we need to really make some changes to the system, both, you know, from what supports women and from how we judge people on criteria for being promoted. How do we do that, though? So I, I think now, I mean, it's hard to escape the that this is a real thing. I mean, you've objectively shown differences. It's been well documented. What do we do in order to make this actually change? I recently uh, published a paper on Canadian health authorities. And out of the 30 manuscripts that I've published and 50 more that I'm working on, this was the only manuscript which showed parity. There was no no disparity, gender disparity. And the reason for that is because it is the government that has mandated. And, and there are carrots and sticks. So if uh, an institution annual evaluations or three-yearly evaluations does not show progress that institution's funding, government funding, grant funding, capsizes. And these are the metrics that are applied across healthcare authorities. These are the metrics, you know, by which progress is measured. Giving up for policy and not following it through or not having repercussions 
is rewarding uh, bad behavior. You know, the best apology is actually changed behavior. That is what best apology is. Similarly, remedial action has to be rewarded and those who persist with this behavior have to be taken to task. That is the only way. I'm a huge fan of uh, Dr. Julie Silver uh, from Harvard Medical School, who is a world leader in gender equity research, very well published in this area. And she always says that if you can't measure it, you can't see it. And it's so important to measure these things because, number one, as Dr. Kosa said, it gives a baseline to look for improvement. But number two, it really opens people's eyes to say, hey, we do have a problem. I think if you are trying to go to leadership and convince people that we need to implement some changes, you really need to be bringing some data with you. You can't just say, oh, we have a gender equity problem because Everybody knows it. You need to say, this is our percentage of women who are in leadership positions. This is what's changed over time. This is what hasn't. And here's what we propose to do to fix it. And here's how we're going to measure our success. So you really need that data as a starting point and as a measuring stick to see how well your interventions are working. Well, I think that's a wonderful summation. So Dr. Kosa, Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And God bless. Have a nice day. Thanks so much for inviting us. Until next time, thank all of our listeners for listening to this JCO Oncology Practice Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, don't forget to give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. While you're there, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. JCO OP Podcasts are just one of ASCO's many podcast programs. You can find all recordings at podcast.asco.org. The full text of the paper is available online at ascopubs.org backslash journal backslash JCOOP posted February 2020. This is Dr. Nate Pinnell for the JCO Oncology Practice signing off.